Just hold your head high, take pride in your work, be the most professional law enforcement officer you can be, and hold others to that same standard. Welcome to this month's edition of the FBI National Academy Associates Leadership APB podcast series. My name is John Kennedy, and I'm the Director of Education and Training for the FBI National Academy Associates. I'll be your moderator today. The Leadership APB podcast series engages law enforcement and public safety executives in discussions on timely and current topics affecting first responders around the world. These leaders will share with you their leadership and managerial philosophies, successes, and obstacles that they've encountered in their careers. We're here today with retired Chief Steve Cox, who brings nearly 30 years of public service experience and served for 27 years in the suburban Leawood, Kansas Police Department, including 17 years as Chief of Police. Steve holds a bachelor's degree in sociology and a master's in administration of justice. He's a proud graduate of the 143rd session of the FBI National Academy. In 2012, Steve was named to the FBI National Academy Associates Charitable Foundation Board. And since 2017, he has been the board's vice chair. Steve is going to share with us his views and experience on how policing has evolved over the last 50 years. Thanks for joining us today, Steve. Uh, Thank you very much, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Steve, why did you choose to go into law enforcement as a profession? Well, the short answer is that I didn't want the career my parents wanted for me, but I did want a career where I could help people and where I could maybe make a difference for the good of society. Uh, Now, that's a a great answer, but it doesn't tell you very much. Uh, The long answer is more complicated, but it also sets the stage for why I'm on this podcast today. Uh, The decade from 1965 to 1975 not only created and molded my law enforcement career, but it also lets me illustrate the similarities and differences between that unsettled time and today's unsettled time. Uh, Please bear with me. Uh, You sometimes have to pass through a lot of darkness in order to emerge in the light. Uh, The early 1960s marked the beginning of more than a decade of major social change and unrest. President John Kennedy was assassinated in 1963. The Civil Rights Movement, largely a push for voting rights and desegregation of public facilities, was both making great progress and meeting stiff resistance. Led by Martin Luther King Jr., it was almost exclusively a peaceful, nonviolent effort. In 1964, the 24th Amendment was ratified, banning poll taxes and opening the way for many black Americans to vote for the first time. Also in 1964, three young men working to register black voters in rural Mississippi were abducted and murdered by members of the KKK, and local law enforcement. The 1965 Voting Rights Act was passed expanding federal voting protections. Also in 1965, voting rights marchers were brutally beaten by state troopers while marching on Selma, Alabama. In other places at other times, cops attacked peaceful civil rights marchers with batons, dogs, and fire hoses. The list of accomplishments and horrors goes on and on. 
and I could spend the entire time allotted me just on civil rights, but I think you get the idea. So what else was going on by about 1966 or so? Well, personally, I graduated from high school and started college. The Vietnam War was escalating, and by its height, it was a very unpopular war. At least part of that dissent was based on the fact that it was fought largely by draftees, and the military draft fell most heavily on poorer minority Americans who didn't have the advantage of college deferments like I did. Young men of my age fought bravely, and 58,000 died in that war, uh, but it was a war that was built on faulty logic and outright dishonesty by the government. Largely due to the war, college campuses became hotbeds of rebellion. Uh, recreational drug use became a thing. A counterculture sprung up that was personified by hippies who wore their hair long and defied just about every norm of established social behavior. In fact, the word establishment itself became an epithet describing any institution, uh, whether it's government, big business, higher education, the military, that had power over somebody's behavior. Young people were either hippies or squares, and there wasn't much space in between. Police became pigs behind our backs and to our faces. In early 1968, Dr. King was assassinated, resulting in massive urban riots and more unrest on campuses. I remember driving a friend home from our university during the Kansas City riot and seeing buildings burning fiercely in the not-too-far distance. In mid-1968, the Democratic National Convention was held in Chicago, accompanied by widespread protests by student radicals and black Americans. The police response was a violent overreaction uh, termed a police riot. Groups like the Students for Democratic Society and the Black Liberation Army defined themselves as revolutionaries and escalated their behavior to include bombings, armed robberies, and murder of police officers. Because the police were responsible for maintaining order during times of campus unrest, urban riots, and protecting the establishment, uh, they were the targets of a great deal of anger and far worse. Uh, just like today, a lot of the criticism was overblown, but a lot of it was justified too. I started college in the fall of 1966, intending to go to law school. Before long, I knew that wasn't what I wanted. I did want to get a degree, and of course I wanted the draft deferment that went along with being a full-time student. Uh, but at the same time, I was a square. I was a figurative and a literal Boy Scout. Uh, I shared some of the frustrations of my peers and saw value in trying to change society, but I thought that was best done within the system uh, instead of by open rebellion, bombings, and even murder. A fraternity brother was majoring in sociology and taking classes in crime and delinquency. We talked about that topic for hours, and I thought the criminal justice system was very interesting, and I probably watched the movie Bullet one too many times. Uh, I thought being a cop could be an interesting and a challenging way to contribute to society and maybe affect some desirable social change, and it could also be a lot of fun. At the beginning of 1970, I dropped back to a part-time student 
when I was hired full-time as a police officer uh, in a suburban department. And of course, becoming a part-time student, because just six months later, at just about exactly on my 22nd birthday, uh, after having lost my student deferment, because I was no longer a full-time student, I was drafted into the Army, and I spent about 21 months on active duty. I returned to the department in March of 1972 and restarted my career. So there's the long answer about how I ended up in law enforcement. Steve, with the current unrest that's happening in our country today and what you just described of what was happening in the 60s and 70s, how are today's times different from then? Um, well, I've tried to paint kind of a general look at the 60s and 70s. Uh, the, the targets of dissent back in those days were large and they were pretty widespread. Racial discrimination and voter suppression, uh, the Vietnam War, the federal government, big business, higher education, the military, and law enforcement. Uh, of course, law enforcement was the most visible representative of government, but there was plenty of anger to go around among all those institutions. Uh, you should know that far more police officers were feloniously killed in the period 1965 to 1975 than are killed feloniously today. And if you don't believe that, just do the research. Uh, the information's right there. What you may not recognize today uh, are the huge reforms that came from the scrutiny of policing in the 60s and 70s. A prestigious federal commission uh, spent uh, uh, two years dissecting law enforcement and the criminal justice system. Much of the professionalism in policing today is a direct result of that commission's report. Uh, just a few up-close and personal examples for you to think about. Uh, my hiring process consisted of an application, reference checks, a credit check, and two interviews, period, the end. My basic police training was three weeks long, 120 hours, and there was no requirement for any recurring training. Uh, my field training largely consisted of riding with a supervisor and learning the streets in the community. Uh, it was pretty much, watch what I do, and you do the same thing. My first co-workers were all white men with high school educations or GEDs. I was an oddball in that department because I had three years of college when I joined. Uh, at best, some junior colleges offered associate degrees in law enforcement, but holders of those degrees were rare. So the, here's the most obvious difference, the most obvious progress. Uh, obviously, recruitment and employment. Think of how the hiring standards have changed from my application and two interviews. Uh, higher education, university programs for law enforcement blossomed after 1970. It's still not a requirement for many law enforcement jobs today, but it's highly desirable at the very least. Uh, by the end of 1973, I had completed my bachelor's degree, and by the middle of 1977, I had earned a master's degree in administration of justice. Just the simple thought of a uh, a graduate degree in criminal justice uh, was unheard of just 10 years earlier. 
Uh, training obviously has changed dramatically. Basic training expanded from just a few weeks to many weeks to many months and longer. Uh, field training stretches that by several months and recurring training is required by law everywhere. Uh, diversity, my department hired its first female officer in 1975 and the first African-American a few years later. Uh, today, diversity has been a major concern for law enforcement employers for many years now. This is another one of those lists that could go on and on, but you get the drift. The dissatisfaction with policing in the 60s resulted in all these improvements and way more. So, moving to the more recent past, what are the major differences between the social unrest of my youth and the social unrest of today? Remember when I said that criticism and dissent in the 60s and 70s was pointed at all those large institutions like business, higher education? It's not a whole lot of that in evidence today. The vast majority of social unrest today lies squarely on law enforcement and law enforcement alone. Why is that? Well, in the broadest view, it is the high-profile police killings of black men. You may not like to hear that, but it's true. It's the public's perception, and it's somewhat grounded in fact, that American police kill black men at a way higher rate than is necessary or justifiable. Black Lives Matter began as nothing more than a hashtag in 2013, and it has grown into an entire movement not unlike what I saw and experienced in the 1960s. Not every such killing is unjustified, but enough are to cause us problems. It really irritates me when people jump to conclusions about what happened, but that's human nature. Once people make up their minds one way or the other about a particular situation, the facts no longer matter. The heat occurs, I think, today because we're far more visible than we were in the 1960s and 70s. As I was retiring in 1998, we were installing in-car video systems. Now it's body-worn cameras, but that's only on the police side. Video is everywhere. You cannot escape it. Virtually every American carries a camera every waking minute. Any of these videos may help you or hurt you. It may not be accurate. It probably doesn't show the whole story, and it can be very misleading. But you're going to have to live with it if you plan to make policing your career. It is our missteps, mistakes, and worse that come back to haunt us on TV and social media. Steve, in your writings, you also state much of the criticism of law enforcement today stems from self-inflicted wounds. You've described a couple just now, but can you tell our audience the reasons behind this and why public opinion matters in society today? Sure. Well, the first formal police organization that we know much about is, of course, the London Metropolitan Police uh, and uh, founded by Sir Robert Peel. And everyone has studied the principles, but I think the most relevant of all of Peer's principles today is his principle number two, to recognize always that the power of the police to fulfill their functions and duties is dependent on public approval of their existence 
actions and behavior and on their ability to secure and maintain public respect. During our first and hopefully only virtual national conference last year, Chief Michael Moore of LAPD started his presentation by saying that the police are at their lowest public popularity in decades. And when I heard that, I said to myself, he's right on, it's five decades to be exact. Why is it in 2020 that officers are unpopular to the same extent they were in 1970? Well, again, I could talk for an entire hour on this, but I really only need to scratch the surface. Uh, again, I'm going to go back to what people see of policing, the stuff that matters. I personally am physically sickened every time I see even a scrap of video or a photo of the death of George Floyd. There are more other examples than I care to think about, but this to me is by far the worst. And at least as disturbing is the participation or the inaction of three other officers at the scene. This is going to become a defining image of policing in 2020, 50 years from now, just like the images of 50 years ago of police officers attacking civil rights workers with batons and dogs and fire hoses is a defining image of policing in, in the 1960s. I have yet to find any cop who will defend or even try to explain the action of the Minneapolis officers that day. Every one of us is horrified, but every single cop and former cop in this country is painted with that broad brush. Every one of us suffers for the actions of a few. I'm not convinced that my own teenage granddaughters don't look at me a little differently now because of that and what else they've seen of law enforcement in the past few years. And if that isn't bad enough, the way we react to these events is sometimes almost worse. When I was living in Albuquerque, an officer there was involved in a disputed, controversial shooting death of a man. You know what the officer had on his Facebook page as his occupation? and I'm going to quote it literally, uh, human garbage disposer. Why do people think poorly of us? What else is this kind of action if not a self-inflicted wound? It takes only one George Floyd to undo years of progress. Well, thanks for sharing that, Steve. Uh, it really hits a nail on the head. So thank you for your perspective on that. But it also leads us to our next question. Your perspective has always been that policing is first and foremost a service business. What do you mean by that? Well, just as you say, that has always been first and foremost in my uh, belief. Uh, it attracts, law enforcement attracts people who are motivated to help other people. Uh, that's why we all were drawn in. We provide a multitude of services to the public uh, and yet we recognize that many of those have nothing to do with direct enforcement of laws. Now, in many communities, depending on the circumstances, uh, the emphasis may tilt toward enforcement over other services, but in other communities, it's service over law enforcement. In the end, though, it's largely all the same, and again, it's the reason we were drawn to the job in the first place, to help other people. Most everyone in policing has had one or many of those irritating encounters with an angry citizen who 
who says in a most condescending way, I pay your salary. As much as that makes us mad, in the final analysis, it's actually true. They do pay our salaries. They buy our cars, our uniforms, our guns, and everything else. Police accountability is becoming a major point of concern, and rightfully so. It's the public's tax dollars that pay for our services and also pay for our mistakes and worse. Uh, Houston Chief Art Acevedo pointed out during the same virtual conference that the court of public opinion matters. Why? Well, because as Peel pointed out, we are dependent for our powers on public approval of our existence, our actions, and our behavior. They really do pay our salaries, and they give us our only real legitimacy. So what is the good news? Am I just sitting here being a critic or pining for the good old days, which really weren't that good? Uh, not at all. To quote Chief Acevedo once again, this is undoubtedly the best generation of law enforcement ever, but it is not perfect and it never will be. We work in an imperfect environment filled with imperfect human beings, ourselves included. My simple closing message to my colleagues today is to urge you not to withdraw. Do not adopt the bunker mentality. Do not get discouraged or give up. If you find yourself wallowing in self-pity, maybe it's time to retire or find a new career. Instead of that, hold your head high, take pride in your work, be the most professional law enforcement officer you can be, and hold others to that same standard. There are a lot of crazy ideas for police reform that won't work, but there are good ideas too. I'm wildly enthusiastic about the value of the ABLE program as a means to prevent situations like the George Floyd death and a wide range of other poor behavior. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, please look it up. Active bystandership in law enforcement. Uh, simply training officers that it's okay to intervene when other officers are engaging in misconduct. I personally lived through all of this same type of environment during that last great period of social upheaval, and I know for a fact that policing came out of 1975 far better than it was in 1965. I am absolutely confident and totally optimistic that if you accept the challenge and look at the current unsettled time as an opportunity for growth and improvement in our beloved profession, you can contribute to the end result that law enforcement will emerge from this troubled era far better than it is today. Steve, you've been very active with the FBI National Academy Associates, and now you're the vice chairman of the FBI NAA Charitable Foundation. Can you tell our audience about the mission of the foundation and how it has helped members of the FBI NAA? Uh, absolutely. It's a, um, I consider it a huge privilege to sit on the board of the foundation. And we exist, very simply, uh, to be what we call the heart and helping hands of the association. We were created in 2010 to assist active members in times of extreme hardship, whether that's a personal or a large natural disaster, uh, illness or death within a family, 
uh, or in some cases a line of duty death. In addition, we provide a number of college scholarships every year for children and grandchildren of NA graduates. Finally, we will for the third year present an award for science and innovation in law enforcement. We made our first assistance payment in 2011, and by the end of 2020, we had funded 106 college scholarships of $1,000 each, assisted 33 members with disaster relief totaling $62,000, provided $40,000 to 20 members dealing with major illness or catastrophic injuries, more than $59,000 to 35 members affected by personal tragedies such as house fires or flooding, and three members in other situations totaling $12,000. All told, by the beginning of 2021, we had given $281,500 to members in all these categories. Please understand the foundation is a benefit provided to current members of the associates. Those whose membership has lapsed are not considered. To learn more about the foundation, we invite you to visit our website at fbinaafoundation.org. You can learn more about what we do and what you can do to help. Steve, while the foundation is doing some outstanding work, we really would like to thank you and the other board members for your leadership. This is a fantastic benefit for our members and is doing some great work around the world. Steve, this concludes our interview. I'd like to thank you for joining us today and sharing your experience and philosophy with our FBI NA members. Hope you have a great rest of the day. Thank you, John. This concludes our broadcast. We hope that you'll join us again for the next edition of the Leadership APB podcast series. Please stay safe and well. 